wherever you are, listeners, I hope you're listening to this with some nice over-ear headphones on to keep your ears warm. Because my goodness, it has been cold out there. Dominic Kramer, have you been out walking on frozen canals with the rest of the Netherlands? Yes, although I'm kind of nervous about mentioning it because I was kind of one of the slightly irresponsible people that was on the ice that turns out wasn't quite frozen. This is so unlike you. You're not really a rash person. I know. It's my Dutch husband. Blame him. He was like, it's totally fine. And we were walking on it and it was totally fine and we got off. But then the person that got off after us did have their leg go through the ice. Oh, that's rather scary. Yeah. I mean, it could have could have gone wrong. Hey, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to do it again. Don't follow my example, please listeners. But did it look very magical? It did. Oh, the city has been absolutely transformed last weekend. It was just so beautiful, exactly what we all needed. Yeah, I mean, as people who've been to Amsterdam and been on one of those tourist boats know, the city looks most beautiful from the middle of the canals. So when you can actually walk into the middle of the canals, it's really quite special. Mm. And it was my birthday. So it felt like a little birthday present from the weather to me. That's lovely. How's your week been? Fine. Haven't been walking on any ice. I've been watching TV in bed like a sensible person because of how cold it is. Uh, yeah, not much happened. Ate a burger on Valentine's Day. It's very romantic. But actually maybe appropriate given that this is a food themed episode. What are we talking about this week? This week we are going to be speaking to one of the most exciting chefs in Europe. Someone who has worked her way up the London food scene, starting off just hosting a supper club in her house when her husband was away for work. And now she has a hugely successful restaurant, the Darjeeling Express. Asma Khan will be talking to us later on in the show to talk about the British obsession with Indian food and how she's trying to shake up that horrible patriarchal culture of the restaurant scene. But first... Who's had a good week? It's been a good week for Mario Draghi, who has become the latest person to try their hand at being Italy's prime minister this week. (laughs) Just give it a go. Why not? Well, there have been a lot of them since the Second World War. This is, in fact, the 67th government in Italy since World War II. So governments change quite a lot in Italy. We'll see how long this one lasts. And as you may remember um, from this segment just a few weeks ago, Italy was plunged into a political crisis after Matteo Renzi, another ex-prime minister and leader of the very small party Italia Viva, Mm. withdrew his support from Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte's government, leading to a lot of uncertainty. I asked back then, why is he doing this? Renzi's move was incredibly unpopular. His party was polling extraordinarily badly, so badly that if there was to be a new election, he'd maybe be shut out of parliament entirely. Renzi, Renzi. And yet, it looks like his gamble might have paid off because the person Renzi most wanted to lead his country now has that top job, Mario Draghi. And meanwhile, Renzi has been doing a victory lap praising himself for his Machiavellian power play. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure any of this will help him get any more support from the public, but he is clearly thrilled. So Mario Draghi, I know he's called Super Mario. What else should we know about him? Draghi was, until about a year and a half ago, the president of the European Central Bank. He is credited by many as the man who saved the euro at the height of the eurozone crisis. Most who have worked with him describe him as just incredibly competent. He's an economist. He is 
currently the most popular politician in Italy. Hmm. He's praised by many of his colleagues as a team player, although he also has another nickname, um, which is Mr. Somewhere Else, due to the fact that he was always disappearing from meetings, um, always had to be somewhere else. Oh, I'd love to learn how to do that. Useful skill. I think you just have to become really important and then it'll happen. Wow. Good luck. So, yeah, he's also known as Super Mario. And let's hope he can live up to that nickname because he's going to have to use some of those economic super powers pretty soon if he's going to manage to help get Italy out of one of the worst economic crises ever, whilst also steering the country through this ongoing health crisis. Renzi obviously thinks Draghi is the right man for the job and he recently said that Draghi was the Italian who saved Europe and now he's the European who can save Italy. That is a good line, isn't it? It sure is. That's the least worst thing that Renzi's done recently is come up with that line. Yeah, well, he's done enough media appearances to work out his good quotes. Draghi's going to have quite a lot of resources to potentially save Italy because uh, Italy will be receiving around 200 billion euros in grants and loans as part of the enormous EU recovery fund. How that money is going to be spent is a big responsibility and a big opportunity for Draghi and his government. So who's actually in this new government? Well, it's a government of national unity with a mix of high-profile business people like the former boss of Vodafone, some technocrats like the Director General of the Bank of Italy, and politicians from across the political spectrum. There are 15 political appointments and eight technocratic appointments. Draghi has actually kept a number of ministers from the previous cabinet in their positions, a move that was seen as quite clever by many analysts. Luigi Di Maio, for example, the former leader of the Five Star Movement, keeps his spot as foreign minister. The Democratic Party's Roberto Speranza also remains Minister of Health. And apparently Draghi played his cards quite cleverly in the negotiations for the cabinet. And he kept all of the party leaders in the dark until the last minute about who was going to be getting what position in his national unity government. Mm. Maybe just another example of his reputation of being a clever strategist. So one person who seemed to have kind of disappeared from the scene a little bit, but now seems to be back, is the far-right bogeyman, Matteo Salvini. What's the deal with him? Where's he going? It is a bit strange to see Salvini providing support for Draghi. Salvini, the head of the Lega party, just a year ago described the European Union as a den of snakes and jackals. And he's now supporting a staunch defender of the European Union. But he said this week that he is a very pragmatic person and it seems that the promise of getting to have a say in what happens with all this recovery fund money was just too tempting an opportunity for him to pass by. I think he probably also realised that not backing this government at a time when government is so clearly desperately needed might not have been the most popular move. It also, of course, gives him the opportunity to withdraw from the government at some point dramatically um, potentially not in the too distant future, in a way that will allow him to retain some of his anti-establishment, anti-EU credentials, no doubt. Mm. Although he has kind of tempered his anti-EU rhetoric lately. So who knows? Maybe this will last a bit longer than people expect. So it sounds like Draghi has got like quite impressively wide appeal. It feels like everyone's behind him. Or is everyone behind him? Yeah, well, almost everyone is. It's really a huge majority he's going to have. The only significant party not backing him is Brothers of Italy, a pretty hard right party that have been working their way up in the polls recently, um, hovering at around third or fourth place. They are led by a 
controversial but pretty popular and youngish leader, Georgia Meloni. Meloni seems to be becoming more and more prominent on the right, taking support away from Salvini's Lega. Her party are for now the only main opposition to the government. Um, This is going to give her an even larger voice and platform to present herself as the right-wing alternative to Draghi's government. She's anti-gay marriage, anti-migration, and she and her party have roots in the post-fascist parties of Italy. So, yeah, she's someone I think we'll be hearing more from. But for now, Draghi has secured his place as prime minister and much of Europe will be very interested to see what he can do. Uh, I read a great tweet thread from Mutia Brahman of Eurasia Group suggesting that Draghi could actually be brilliant news for the EU as a whole. He could set a high bar for projects involving the recovery budget, forcing Germany and France to up their game. He could also help the EU update their fiscal rules to work better for these times. So... We'll see. There's some optimism in Europe at the moment. And you say it's been a good week for Draghi himself, but just imagine you leave this incredibly stressful job as head of the European Central Bank in, what was it, like late 2019? And you're like, yes, finally I can just do a bit of gardening, catch up on my Netflix, potter around the kitchen. And then someone's like, hey, Mario, this is kind of awkward, but can you come and be prime minister at this really, really difficult time, please? Yeah, there's been talk that maybe... His wife won't be so happy because a year and a half ago when he was leaving his last job, they asked him what he was going to do next. And he said, I don't know. Ask my wife. It's up to her. (laughs) So they had a bit of time off. It's fine. He'll be well rested. I I think it was quite widely known that he was willing to take on a pretty big job again in politics. So here it is. They don't really come bigger. Good luck, Mario. Who's had a bad week, Katie? Well, there were a few different options for bad week this week. Sorry, it's been one of those weeks. There have been a couple of rather alarming stories around media freedom in Central Europe, which I just wanted to mention briefly. Uh, In Poland, a lot of people are worried about this new tax on media outlets that is going to really hurt independent media at a time when Poland really needs independent media. And in Hungary, the main independent radio station, Club Radio, it just lost its broadcasting licence. Is it a coincidence that this radio station is quite critical of the government? I don't think so. But yeah, we might come back to those two stories in the weeks to come because neither of them is going away. But this week I wanted to talk about Greece, specifically what is going on at Greek universities. And a big thank you to Francesca for flagging this up on our Patreon Facebook group because I'd seen the headlines about this, but I hadn't really taken the time to look into it. And uh, yeah, it's quite disturbing, actually, uh, and really interesting. So like me, you've probably seen headlines for a few weeks now about these big student protests in Athens and also Thessaloniki. And what they've been protesting about are plans to create a new police force for Greece's university campuses. Uh, That new law was passed on Thursday, so it's been a pretty bad week for the protesters. And these campus police officers... It's actually part of a whole bunch of educational reforms that have been passed, but this is the really controversial one. They're not going to have guns or anything, but they are going to have pepper spray and they are going to be able to do things like punish you if you put up a political poster on the wall or if you have a loud party. Uh, And generally, they are going to be able to arrest people, consider troublemakers on university campuses. Now, you and I went to university together a very long time ago, Dominic. Not that long ago, really. How would you have felt if we'd had a police force on the campus? Yeah, wouldn't have been fun. Although you were my next door neighbour and occasionally you had parties and (laughs) maybe it would have been nice to have someone to call. You would totally have called the police on me. (laughs) Now it's all coming out. 
yeah, I think it would have made things very different, although we went to quite a law-abiding nerdy university. But I think the reason that people have been getting so upset about this in Greece is because there is this history of conflict between Greek universities and security forces. So back in 1973, Greece was still under military rule. And there was a super famous student uprising at Athens Polytechnic that people really see as the beginning of the end of the dictatorship in Greece. This uprising, it ended with horrific bloodshed, the student uprising, at least 26 people got killed. And because of that, After democracy got restored to Greece, the government passed this law that said police cannot come onto university campuses. If there's a serious crime committed, then yes, they can come in. But other than that, they are barred. And so historically, this ban on police entering universities, it was just seen as really symbolic. Uh, It honoured those students who had stood up against the military junta back in the 70s. So has the fact that the police haven't been allowed on campus actually caused any problems in reality for lawlessness? Has there been anarchy on campuses? Well, this is what the government says. The government is behind this new university police force idea. And they say the reason it's needed is that the ban on police has helped encourage campuses to, yeah, basically become lawless. And that there's loads of drugs that get sold on site and they're covered with graffiti and broken windows and that people steal stuff like all the time. So I mean, Polytechnic, this iconic university where the uprising took place in the 70s, that university got robbed of like 200,000 euros worth of equipment last year, uh, which is pretty apparently quite par for the course uh, for university robberies. Um, So yeah, supporters of this law are like, yes, it's very nice in theory to say that universities should be places of complete freedom, but just look at the consequences. So I don't want to make it sound like there's no arguments at all on that side. However, it should be noted that it is a conservative government that has proposed this new university police force and that Greek universities are a real home for left-wing political activism, including really far left and even anarchist activism. But also things like movements that want to help migrants and that kind of thing. They've traditionally had a really strong home on university campuses. So a lot of the students who've been out protesting about this, they think it's basically a thinly veiled attempt to stop political organising on campuses, if they're not even allowed to put up political signs, for instance. So for them, this is about the freedom to organise politically and to express opinions. Now, the government has obviously denied that this is going to stop students from being free to say what they want to say. And they've said, actually, this will protect freedom of expression, because at the moment, there's extremists on campus who are trying to censor what everyone says. And I guess that kind of taps into this sort of international culture war we're having around wokeism and stuff like that. And also to talk about the more, you know, the Greek context, which is quite specific. There was this horrible attack on an Athens university rector, Demetrius Buratonis, last year. Some anarchists basically held him hostage and wrecked his office. So there have been some really serious incidents, definitely. But at the same time, it does make me quite uneasy, the idea of having these cops on campuses, especially in a country where that is really historically sensitive. What do you think about it? Well, it just sounds like it might be a bit of an overreaction that they could find some middle ground whereby if you got loads of equipment stolen, the police could like stop that kind of thing, but you can still carry political signs. Maybe we should call them up and tell them we've got a good compromise idea. Bad week for the student protesters in any case. Who are the latest amazing people to support this podcast? They are Olivia Walker and Deborah Giudetti 
also, we've had a few who've increased their donations this week. So extra thanks to Katerina Wiekman and Robert Bentham. You can join all these lovely people and help keep this podcast going by heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. You can donate as little as $2 or pounds or euros or some other things a month. And that would be really nice. Yay. Make our day. It would be really nice. If you can't afford to do that, and we totally understand if you can't, why not post about us on the internet? That's free and it really helps us to grow. Or you could tell your rich friend or auntie to help support us. That would be really nice. We don't talk enough about food on this podcast. Back in the very early days, we interviewed a Danish chef who was making a local interpretation of pizza. And I think you and I also had an argument at one stage about who owns meatballs as a concept. Do you remember that? No, I actually can't. We've been doing this too long. Well, it was something to do with whether IKEA should pay Turkey reparations for like stealing the concept of meatballs. Oh, yeah. It was a very, very long time ago. If you're interested, you can still find it. Our very earliest episodes are, unfortunately, still in this feed. But yeah, I think in Europe, these conversations often come up about the way that food gets tweaked and changed as it crosses our borders. And sometimes that happens in a fairly organic way as I think was true with the meatballs, spreading across the continent over the centuries. And sometimes it's a bit more awkward, like when a well-meaning white couple open an Asian restaurant because they just love Asian food. Or when British supermarkets, for example, try to make French baguettes and fail, and they're terrible. I find it very upsetting when I go back to the UK, the quality of French bread. But one person whose opinion I'm really interested in when it comes to how food crosses borders is Asma Khan, superstar chef. You have no doubt seen her in the Netflix documentary series, Chef's Table, which chronicled Asma's stunning rise as a chef. Uh, As Dominic said earlier, she started running these supper clubs at home as a way of staving off boredom and loneliness after moving from India to the UK. And it grew into this phenomenal restaurant in London called the Darjeeling Express, which was staffed by women who were home cooks like her. And they've just recently moved to a new site in London's Covent Garden. She is unstoppable. And when she's not growing this fantastically successful restaurant, Asma is also an activist. I think it's fair to call her that. She's done a huge amount to help immigrant chefs and people who were just starting out in the food business. She opened a cafe in Iraq stuffed by women who had been kept captive by ISIS. And when she's not doing all of that, she is someone who has put a lot of thought into this idea of food that crosses borders and how to treat it respectfully, uh, particularly when it comes to food that came originally from British colonies like India. Dominic and I had a really great chat with Asma about food and borders and history and much more besides. And I really hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start by going back to when you first arrived in the UK. What was your first impression of the British obsession with Indian food? I really thought they got it wrong. I appreciated their enthusiasm. But uh, the first Indian restaurant I went to in Cambridge, I was taken by a colleague of my husband and the rice arrived in different colours of the rainbow. They had just dyed them uh, and they called it royal rice. And the saag paneer was actually cottage cheese. And this is, of course, 30 years ago. I was just amazed because I had not been able to understand what they liked. But I was also in some ways quite excited because I felt that, oh, great, you know, they're interested in our cuisine. And, you know, every corner had an Indian restaurant. 
and people would go there and people would seem so excited and and it was this kind of nice feeling that oh this is like interesting that people are you know know my food but then i realized the food they know is not the food i know but then that's a separate issue yeah and this is something that we see all over europe you know here in paris south asian food and east asian food it tends to be made for example a lot less spicy because the french palate just can't take spice and it's funny what you mentioned about paneer because you see the same thing here um, i have an indian colleague who went to a, a restaurant and they were serving instead of paneer you know those little um vashkiri it's called laughing cow yes. cheese the little triangles of cheese and he was just like what what is this it's so crazy it's so sad because don't do it don't serve things you can't make but everybody is role playing and this is a problem with you know immigration as well that when you leave you think this is what people think you eat when you can't do it you come up with some version and you try and kind of you know fake it till you make it and the problem is they didn't bother to make it but do you see it as maybe like something of a i don't know like a historical inevitability the fact that immigrant chefs have sort of adapted their food for european palates and it's become its own kind of thing do we need to say like you know you should really be eating a more authentic version of these dishes or should we just accept that food has sort of mutated a bit as it's crossed borders I'm in two minds on this one I think that food will always meander and take on different flavors and traditions depending on where they are you know I look at my own child and I see the hideous combinations he comes up with using you know paratha i have made or some rice that i've done and then he does terrible things to it and i i am looking over thinking you know this is my own child and he has mutated this beyond anything recognizable and i forgive him because he's my own child it's harder when you are actually running a business and you claim that you are presenting a cuisine the problem is that you know when the majority population who have the wealth and the means take the cuisine or the culture of a minority community make it theirs and profit from it this is a problem because you take away forever the jollof rice you take away forever the biryani and the kebabs and the dal that you are using to make twisted stuff i'm not commenting on the quality of the food but i just feel that you need to be more honest about what is inspiring you be open about what you've taken from a particular cuisine and in this way you also honor the people of that food because that is a problem when you disrespect my food in some ways you disrespect me so you're quite famous for telling stories while you're serving the food firstly in your supper club and then as you grew into a pop-up restaurant and now an even bigger restaurant i was wondering what's it been like for you presumably you've had to let go of some of the storytelling as it's got bigger I, I, now you have a big restaurant you can't talk to all your customers how how is that for you do you feel a sense of loss i somehow manage i talk less which might be good for the customers they don't need to deal with me for so long and listen to me and they can get on with the eating so maybe they're all better off because it's a bigger restaurant i do manage to speak to everyone but then the other thing is that i have now people like you who want to talk to me i tell my stories so even though if i may not personally be able to tell my story to people there are people who will listen to this podcast who will come to eat who would have heard me speak my voice reaches people before they get to this restaurant and in the lockdown it has been vital i have had that space and that creative pause 
where I am not serving tables and I'm not cooking, but I'm speaking. I love the fact that you've always operated this very female kitchen full of women who are who are home cooks. When I look at the ranks of like the fanciest Michelin starred chefs, a tiny, tiny proportion of them are women. Why do you think the restaurant industry has remained such a macho place when around the world it's still women who are doing the bulk of the cooking at home? I think it's self-selection. I think that people feel more comfortable picking people in their own image. And this is why, you know, investors, mainly restaurant investors are men. Restauranteurs are mainly men. They will pick a male chef because they all think they're going into mortal combat. They don't understand. They're just running a restaurant. But this whole idea of endurance and, you know, macho, testosterone-driven, 16-hour shift, you leave home when it's dark, you go back when it's dark. You're not in the bloody army. You're not fighting a war. You're just cooking. And the Michelin stars are all awarded to these turbulent chefs. And this whole idea of suck it up and, you know, you'll get there because then when you become powerful, you believe the person below you because this is how you think progress happens. This is how power is displayed in a kitchen. Who shouts? Who is aggressive? Who kicks someone down? Who ridicules someone? Who reduces women to tears? I remember reading this piece where the chefs would have a competition every morning and the person who won is the one who made that single female chef cry. This is self-selection. The elite in hospitality are a members-only club in Mayfair in London. They know each other. They pat each other on the back. They owe each other favors. And they will not speak out against each other. The greatest indication is whenever there have been proven cases of bullying and proven cases of you know, any kind of thing that happened where a chef was involved of sexual harassment. We've had a few recently. The silence from female Michelin star chefs was deafening. Not a single one said anything. What does that say? So it's not just the men. It's about the elite. It is about privilege. And those that have that privilege and elitism and feel that belong to this club will never speak up. There is a place in hell that waits for you. There's a big pot of oil in which you're going to be boiled for not having stood up, not having called it out. But unfortunately, most people see the short-term advantage of being part of that club. The club on which I'm glad I'm not a member. It allows me to be the heckler on the outside. You're not a member of that club, but you are incredibly successful now. And do you think that the fact that you have managed to become a huge success with this very empathetic, kinder ethos in your restaurant shows that there is an appetite for restaurants that work in a kinder, less misogynistic and less patriarchal way. I've come into a space where someone who looked like me was never, ever part of the equation. But now I'm at the heart of it. And people need to listen to what I say because I speak for the voiceless. I speak for every woman who hasn't felt respected. And so this is beyond hospitality. It goes beyond to every kind of industry. So I really need people to see this space and understand that there are two ways that you can win. I won without being stupid and cruel and mean to everybody. You know, it's cost me money. All of us are losing. I haven't gained anything, but at least I sleep at peace at night. I can look at myself in the mirror and don't feel ashamed that I crushed someone's dreams. There is a value in that. Everyone should try it. Did you feel at all conflicted in 
publishing a recipe book which contains some of these guarded signature dishes from the women in your family. Was there any conflict about sharing these secrets? I don't want to go to my grave with these recipes. I think that I want to open my heart and share things. And just that I'm always vocal about, and I have a lot of women who are setting up businesses, you know, in the old restaurant, every Sunday I gave my kitchen for free to, you know, aspiring female chefs and supper club chefs to get them the feel of what a restaurant looks like without any cost. Often I was their waitress for free, trying to help them, to encourage them. But I don't want to have this label of elitism, of royalty, of, of this kind of mysterious cuisine that you only get in the palace. So why should I not share my recipes? Why should I not share the stories so that those who happen to have been born in a different family can still make the food of my family? There was no conversation or debate with my family on this. They understood why I needed to do it. And in the first pre-order, I laughed when I saw the names of people who were pre-ordering the book, all my family, because they all also don't have these recipes. They were like, oh, great. And one of my cousins came and bought 25 books. 25 books. She was like, you know, I'm going to give it to everybody because she couldn't explain the recipes because none of us, all of us have it orally. My family has been actually very good at buying, uh, buying my book and, you know, very great at getting their friends to buy my books. So it's all good. Finally, Asma, this is actually a special request from our producer, Priyanka. We have a segment in our podcast called Isolation Inspiration, which is usually suggestions for TV shows and films that people can watch during lockdown. But this week, we'd love to include a recipe, if possible. So can you give us some inspiration? Like, what can we cook to uh, liven up these miserable evenings? I would say masala omelette. Masala omelette, you can end up having with pasta, with rice. So, you know, you've got to put green chilies in and onions and lots of herbs and this is kind of painless because you also don't want to end up the whole time washing up. And then if you have any left, you can put them in white bread with lots of butter and ketchup. And then you put the omelette inside and it's your omelette sandwich. So whatever you have in the house, whether you have pasta, you have rice, so you've got bread that's about to go off, just fry it in butter and then put the omelette in and it's all good. So I would say make a spicy omelette. I made a masala omelette this weekend on Asma's advice. Cool. How did it work out? It was delicious and you should make one too. I'll post a picture on our Instagram account so you can see it in all of its eggy glory. If you want to hear more from Asma, do check out her episode of Chef's Table on Netflix, which tells a lot more about her really interesting life story. She also wrote a really good piece in the latest edition of Are We Europe? The Colonialism Issue. So go get yourself a copy of that at areweeurope.eu. And also go join their membership program to help keep them going. It's time for a bit of isolation inspiration. What have you been watching this week? I'm a bit worried I've recommended this already, but I look back on my notes and I couldn't find it. Okay. I have been watching the BBC Hulu adaptation of Sally Rooney's novel, Normal People. Maybe you mentioned it before. Well, everybody was watching it. This is another one of those things that everyone else has watched already, Dominic. You're recommending it like eight months late. In my defence, 
It's also because it's only recently come out in the Netherlands. Fair enough. I loved the book. It follows two young people, Marianne and Connell, who grew up in County Sligo in Ireland's Atlantic coast and both moved to Dublin for their studies. I won't talk about the uh, book anymore because you've all probably already read it and we probably talked about it already but I can't remember but it's really rare that I love a book so much and then also love the television or film adaptation I really think they got it absolutely right and I loved the casting I thought it's so beautiful it's so painful just jaw-droppingly good television Mm. in much of Europe it's available on stars play In the UK, it's on the iPlayer, but you've all probably already seen it already in the UK. And in America, it's on Hulu. Go and hunt it down. It is really wonderful TV. I totally agree. It's like one of those rare things where it's like, yeah, they've actually done a really good job bringing it to life on the screen. Just amazing. And apparently the same team are going to be adapting her first book, Conversations with Friends. Can't wait for that. Oh, cool. What have you been enjoying this week? Uh, I watched a ton of TV and movies this week because it was so cold and none of it was remotely European. I kept watching things and thinking does this count? Like I watched that Korean movie, Space Weepers, and some of it's in Spanish. So I thought maybe this qualifies. Um, But no, I think I should just give up and admit that none of it was European. But I am close to finishing a book. Loads of people will know this already because it is from the year 2000. And it is Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris. Have you read any David Sedaris? No, I never have. I love him. He is the only writer who ever makes me laugh out loud while reading from the page. And that just feels really good at the moment. I think I need that in my life. This one is all about him moving to France with his boyfriend and trying to learn French at the age of, I think, around 40. And honestly, there's so many moments in this book that are hilarious if you've ever tried to learn a language about like how frustrating and humiliating it can be. There's this moment where he gets really anxious about getting the genders and all the French nouns wrong. So he just starts ordering like multiple of everything in the shops because that way you don't have to say the gender. And it's like driving his boyfriend completely crazy. (laughs) Just got multiple of everything. But there's also really fun things in there about how living in a different country and speaking a different language makes you think differently about your own language and your own culture as well. So it's definitely one for anyone who's ever felt the pleasure and pain of learning a new language. But it's also just a really, really funny book. Definitely recommend it. Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris. For this week's happy ending, I wanted to wish a very happy birthday to Sister Andre, a nun who lives in Toulon in the south of France and who just turned 117 years old on Thursday. Not bad. Sister Andre is thought to be the second oldest person alive and the oldest in Europe. She survived two world wars and a recent coronavirus infection. She was celebrating with foie gras and a baked Alaska. It's such a good dessert. Good for you, Sister Andre. Although apparently she was too tired to eat her dessert, so she had a nap and got served the baked Alaska in her bed. Oh, even better. And she got served red wine because apparently one of the secrets of her longevity is red wine. Do with that information what you will. There you are. Happy birthday, Sister Andre. Happy birthday, Sister Andre. Uh, her birthday's just a day before yours, Dominic. Maybe next year you can have a joint party. Maybe we can. She said, as she says every year, she won't be here next year. But who knows? Maybe she will. She could become the oldest person if, well, that's a bit grim, isn't it, to compare. <laughs> there is one older woman alive in Japan. It's not a competition. It's not a competition. Happy birthday, Sister Andre. Joyeux anniversaire. 
Europeans, please be careful before you step on that ice. Do not do what Dominic did and just walk out onto it willy-nilly. It might not be as thick as you think it is. I knew it wasn't even that thick. I knew I shouldn't be doing it. Just playing with fire. Anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of The Europeans in your feed every Wednesday. In the meantime, catch us on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm not even going to say them this week. I think people have heard them enough. So lazy. Thank you so much to Andre Popovicu, Priyanka Shankar and Katz Laszlo for editing this week's podcast. A la próxima. Bye.